Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Code 321 Podcast. John Christman is here with me today. Hey, John, how you doing? Not bad, yourself? Good. So today we're going to be talking about anatomy and physiology, and it's not going to be just like a college lecture. We're going to talk about how to actually apply this in the street and why it matters. One of the things that I've noticed with a lot of students that we have is they kind of fight the requirement to go through anatomy and physiology, and we're going to talk about why it actually is so important and how you can actually start applying this to EMS calls. So John, welcome to the show. Um, if you don't mind, do you want to just tell the folks a little bit about how you started in EMS and fire and kind of where you are today? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I started um, in EMS, you know, roughly 24 years ago. Um, I was 17 at the time, a uh, small organization, right? Got into it and um, just sort of kind of rolled, you know, rolled into it rural EMS style. Um, and that's where I, you know, I kind of got started. Uh, and then I just, you know, I got, I was already in the fire service. My dad got started in the fire service, kind of got me interested in it and, uh, you know, just kind of took off from there, uh, bounced around to a few different organizations till I landed here in South Burlington. Uh, been here in South Burlington for, uh, almost 18 and a half years, currently holding the, the rank of captain. And, uh, I've been, I have been everything from an EMR. I think that's what it was called back then, yeah. uh, to an EMT, to an EMTI. I took the I-80 nine or 80, whatever it was. Yeah. Uh, I-85 course, I think is what it was. Um, right before I came up here to South Burlington Yeah, and then took the transition to AEMT when that came around and then made the leap to paramedic, uh, in 2000, I started class in 2010, went live in 2012. That's awesome. And you do some training over there too, South Burlington? Yeah. I mean, I've been involved in training for the fire Academy for a super long time since 2006. Um, and yeah, I've done, you know, I, I've dabbled in, in medical, you know, stuff for you guys, yeah. um, just a little bit here and there, uh, CPR instruction for a long time. And, uh, yeah, I do quite a bit of, quite a bit of training and, um, I am I'm the EMS coordinator for South Burlington as well. So I kind of manage over, at least oversee all of the training requirements EMS wise for the organization. So. Yeah. And so for those of you that are listening, if you're not from, this area in Northern Vermont, you know, we don't have a lot of paramedics. It's not necessarily that every single truck and every shift has a ton of them. Um, so our responsibilities as paramedics on these departments, as we get students, is we're all going to just have to precept no matter where we're at. So yep. um, you do a lot of that too. I know we had Nick Perkoff on the show, so shameless plug. If you want to go back and listen <laughs> to any episodes of Nick Perkoff or Mikey Genslinger, we have all kinds of other South Bees on, uh, guys on here too. Yeah. So. Um, just keeping in the natural sciences vein um, for a second, one of the things you said was um, you're kind of you're talking about coming up through different jobs and different levels. This is something that I've noticed has uh, it almost seems like we've had a little bit of a culture shift, at least in the organization that I work in. You know, 10 years ago or five years ago, it seemed like you were getting somebody who was an EMT on a rural service or an EMT on a private ambulance service. And then they would go join a fire department and get firefighter one and they would run some fires. They'd run some car accidents. They'd cut some cars in the interstate. And then they're like, "Okay, I'd like to do this full time. And they would apply and get a job. Um, We have changed our requirements to kind of accommodate for what we have in the recruitment pool and the last few classes we've hired are predominantly EMTs and predominantly EMTs with no experience. I mean, we've had furniture salesmen, we've had hockey players, we've had military people who, you know, used to load heavy ammunition in aircraft carriers and they've never even seen a blood pressure cuff. You know, and I think one of the things that 
is really healthy for a EMS provider is that biodiversity of having different experiences. When I transitioned from my call fire department and I knew I was going to get hired in my first career department, I actually went and applied to Colchester Rescue for the sole reason that I wanted to be on an ambulance where there was no fire captain, there was no backup, there was no other ALS providers. And at two o'clock in the morning, if you go 25 minutes out and you have a seizing baby, you're it. Like there's nobody to call. There's no one that's going to back you up. And I really wanted to kind of test my mettle in those environments. Um, and I think you probably would agree that there's some experiences you had coming up through those less staff services that kind of helped you develop some confidence to perform in a bigger urban system. Oh, absolutely. I have a, I have a movie reel going right now in my yeah. head, um, right? Because in Cabot, where I started, small town Vermont, you were it. And you were rolling out sometimes with just two people on the truck and there was nobody coming to bail you out. You were it. You yeah. had to figure this out. You had to do it. Um, and then from there, I went, uh, I spent some time working at Upper Valley Ambulance and Upper Valley covers a huge just geographic area. Um, you know, as far out as, as, you know, the far reaches of Piermont, New Hampshire, where you're, you're 45 minutes away from, you know, the nearest hospital and, and uh, you might have a fast squad that would show up. Maybe, yeah. you know, if, if there were some folks available, but for the, for the majority of it, it was, you know, it was on us. Um, and, you know, I, I worked with some incredible providers, uh, both in Cabot as well as Upper Valley, who really shaped my approach to EMS, you know, in my, and more importantly, I like to think my ability to be patient, you yeah. know, and to, to sit back and be like, okay, I got this. Yep. Slow exactly. down. I can handle this. Yeah. You know? I was just talking the other day uh, with somebody about, um, they were talking about, I think it was like fire ground communication, but I was thinking about it in kind of the vein of EMS. And one of the big changes I've seen is it's so classic and you don't see it until you have a couple of years out of school, but they always say like, oh yeah, these new medics, they come out of school and they're just so aggressive. They do everything. They treat everything. They're just so heavy handed with all their medicines and all their new skills and tools that they have available. And that like really was true for me. Like I was, <laughs> I was prepared to do that. And, you know, I think one of the things we've talked about from an education perspective is you spend the entire time in class talking about zebras and you don't even talk about horses. So when you hear hoofbeats, you just assume it's a zebra all the time. You know, SVT, 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 SVT. And the minute you see a fast rhythm, you're like, oh, SVT, right? And you just go right to that. Yep. And I know that's a soft spot for you, the SVT. It's not a rhythm, <laughs> but um, yeah. So check out that other podcast. I'll put a link in the description if you're interested in SVT. We it's got a great, a one great episode. Um, so you know, moving on from that, I think I think making sure that we have those opportunities to work with other providers and kind of see what their styles are. Yeah. Now, as I've had some time to work with other mentors and preceptors and kind of seen how other medics have done it, um, I can't tell you how many times it saved my bacon just to take that tactical pause. Like if you have discretionary time, just hang on just a second. It, you don't have to wait. You don't have to do nothing. Just just cycle one more pressure. Yeah. Like just just if it if you get an anomaly, get two points or three points of data before you pull the trigger, yep. because it's so easy to see a thing and treat a thing. But you really need to like trend stuff as a paramedic, and that was a lesson that I kind of learned the hard way, you know. And and just relying on that, you know, don't trust a monitor, trust your patient, you know, make your good assessment. And one of the things we've been talking about is you know anatomy and physiology, and that's that's where that foundation is going to be. Is when you see that patient crashing is. Not only are you getting the quantitative data from the monitor, but you have to have your own subjective assessment based in fact of anatomy and physiology. Well, and all of it's built on 
it's built on what knowledge you have, right? What are you pulling from to make these decisions coupled together with your experience? And if you have that, you know, where we're headed with this, if you have that solid understanding of how's it put together, what's it supposed to do, and why, what am I seeing? Those three things are going to guide me. And if you have to take 10 seconds to gather what it is I'm seeing so that I can couple it with what I know is supposed to be there or is not supposed to be there, you know, you can, you can make a better decision on where we're going forward. Exactly. And I think this, this idea of like moving a little bit slowly as you start doing these things, the more aggressive you're, there's definitely times where you just have to pull the trigger and take care of business. But if you have that discretionary time and you can make slow little increments, you know, a, a great, uh, tip I got from one of the doctors I was working with in clinical was, you know, when you put a med in, you can always add a little bit more, but it's pretty hard to take it back out once it gets to the heart tissue. So don't be afraid to, you know, if you're not sure exactly how it's going to, how it's going to work out, do a half dose yeah. and then follow it up and then get your loading dose and then do make, it's okay to build like that once in a while, yep. you know, as long as you understand the pharmacokinetics and what the body's doing and you're watching for the right signs, you know, and one of the coolest things that I had the experiences of doing in clinical was uh, when you had to go to the ED uh, to do your clinical, they actually would separate you into two different types of shift. You would either select a nursing shift where you would go in and you would follow a nurse around. And your primary goal there was interventions where you were working with the nurse, you gave meds, you started IVs, uh, you might be doing tubes, you might be doing that kind of thing. Um, and then the other one, the other track you had to do, and they were split 50-50, was a doc shift. So you had to go in and you would either follow around, you know, sometimes it'd be a med student, sometimes it'd be a resident, sometimes it'd be an attending, and all you would do would be assessments. So if you had one of those high-level, high-acuity, low-opportunity procedures, you could always jump in on those. But the primary goal was the assessment. And I thought it was so cool to watch how a doctor or a med student or a resident does an assessment because it's it's so different than an EMT, right? Oh. An EMT is like, you know, am I safe? Are you safe? What do I need to do? Who do I tell? Like, and that's pretty much how you go through it. And these doctors are like, tell me about your heart attack six years ago. What did they do for you? Where did you go? Yeah. What do you take for medicine? And it's like this huge, like Bob Ross painting of what's happening to them, you know, and they use medical history and assessment tools. And, you know, that's, that's where you're, you're looking at the feet and the toenails and looking at the signs that you see in the book that you never pay attention to. And it was so cool to have both those tracks, you know, the, the heavy hitting hands-on medicine track. And then also that like cerebral thought process of head to toe. Yeah. I thought that was really cool. And we did something very similar. Like we, I don't know if I'm trying to think back if we actually had like dedicated, you know, this is your, this is your nursing or your interventions and this is your assessment. But I can remember going in and being assigned to a physician and yeah. you're, you're going to follow this physician today and they're going to, they're going to task you with go in, do an assessment, come out, tell me what you think you found. Um, but what I wanted to, to circle back to was what we started talking about with backgrounds and where people are coming from. Yeah. I learned a lot about being an EMT by working with other EMTs and seeing how they do it and picking out the things that I liked and the things that I didn't like. The same holds true for working with these physicians. Um, for instance, uh, you know, abdominal assessments, I never really had like a, a good solid abdominal assessment until just recently having attended, um, I guess it started with listening to a podcast talking about abdominal assessment and some of the different things that you could do. Um, it was, um, 
Medic Mindset. Yep. It was an epi- episode on Medic Mindset. Yeah. And they were talking about, you know, how to do different abdominal assessments and all the different things that you can do. And then it wasn't a week later and I was in the ER bringing a patient in and watching the doc do almost the exact same thing that I had just listened to the podcast. And I'm going, well, I'd never done that before, you know? And so I gathered some, it, just a little nugget of information by watching this doc do something different that I hadn't done before, you know, and now it's, now it's in there. Now I can, you know, have that in my head to pull and under coupled together with the anatomy, you know, and understand why they're doing it. Why are they doing this particular little assessment? So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think it's so interesting. One of the things I just recently learned after uh, working with Dr. Plant, some of those folks as training, some of the medical residents, they bring me in to do the low level stuff like the tourniquets <laughs> and the, the bandages and stuff. But anyway, so just, just being around that type of um, instruction, I've learned that our protocols are actually a lot of really complicated medical assessments that are that are kind of in plain language. And I yeah. don't think people notice that like the advanced spinal assessment is the nexus criteria. Like yeah. that's that's what they use in the hospital as a neurologist to make a decision about a spinal injury. You know, and I think they're trying to do that to make it more palatable for all levels by not being like, well, you can do the nexus or the, you know, Los Angeles stroke scale. You know, they're they're kind of palating it down. Yeah. But, you know, fast ED, joint triage, you know, advanced spinal assessment, the septic shock protocol, those are all like very official med cram style assessment tools that give numerical data for evidence based treatment decision making. And it's cool that that's all in there, but it's kind of camouflaged as plain language. And I have a lot of respect for the protocol committee being able to do that, being able to take something that an attending physician at a level one trauma center is going to be using as a tool. Um, I remember one of the EMTs I was working with had a question and I was like, do you know why when you walk in on a trauma alert and they say, what was your, you know, highest blood pressure and highest heart rate? You know, it's like they're doing a, a shock index. Yep. what they're doing with what you're like it's not just they're not just arbitrarily saying that they're calculating numerical data that's used in their medical chart to make patient decisions about yeah. their care based on what you're telling them so i think it's so cool to you know just take a step back and recognize that you know we have the opportunity to really affect this system of care from the ground up but i think it really starts with that anatomy and physiology because oh. it there's nothing that's going to invalidate you more in front of a patient than if they hurt themselves and they say, what's going on with me? And they say, well, you're, I think your foot bone is, is really hurting. <laughs> you know, they want a little bit more, your paramedic yeah. or an EMT or an AEMT. Yeah. You know, they want to know that, that, you know, your profession. Yeah. So, I mean, we are essentially, you know, along the lines of a craftsman, right? Like we, we need to understand the medium that we're working in the tools that we have available and how they interact. I mean, that's, that's craftsmanship, yep. right? It doesn't matter what it is, whether you're a painter or a plumber, a builder, you understand your medium and you understand the tools that you have available. Yep. Absolutely. And, and, uh, I think moving into anatomy and physiology, um, what I've always used to kind of describe anatomy to students in the simplest form possible is where is it located and how is it shaped? Would you add anything to that? I mean, no, that's a fair easy assessment of it, right? Is knowing, knowing, cause what we, we got to leave out the physiology side of it, yeah, right? Yeah. That's the next step. Yep. So you have to know where it is, where it should be. That's true. That's where right. it should be. Yeah. And roughly what shape it is, yep. you know, to, and, and 
maybe what, um, what consistency is it, yeah. right? Are we talking a solid? Are we talking, you know, a tube? Are we talking a liquid? Yep. So, so I'll give you a, a perfect example of how we apply this in class to students. So, um, the national registry questions, I love national registry questions. I'm kind of a freak like that. Most <laughs> people don't. I actually like taking my exam for research because I, I really enjoy the way that they're written and I can kind of see through the question and see what they're trying to do. And I'll give you an example. So just hypothetically speaking, national registry, don't get me in trouble. Let's say they give you a question that says, you know, you have a patient who is stabbed in the right upper abdomen. What organ should you suspect is affected? Yep. They're telling you it's the liver. That's yeah. what they're looking for because they, they're looking to see, does this candidate know that the largest, one of the largest organs in your body is in that location and it bleeds heavily and it's very serious. They're trying to see, do you understand the human body enough to know that if someone gets stabbed in that location, they're going to bleed a lot and they're going to die. Yeah. And, and I think it's so interesting that we work with students and, you know, they're like, you know, well, you know, I, I, I just don't understand this question and there's a lot of answers and, and all those things are in that area and it's about... Well, what's the most likely yeah. organ? You know, think about the shape of it. Like, do you really think they hit a gallbladder with a one inch wide knife or do you think they hit the liver? Right? And, and have an understanding, where is that gallbladder in relation to the liver? Yeah. More than likely, you're going to have to go through the liver yeah. to get to the gallbladder. Yep. So it still goes back to that same thing, right? That, yep. No, it's a liver injury. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Maybe they got the gallbladder too. Yeah. But what's the one that's probably going to kill them? Exactly. Right. And I think it's just a great example of how we can build trust with our patients I really enjoy that interpersonal exchange when the patient says, you know, hey, I, I, you know, I got a lot of pain right in my, my upper right quadrant. I don't, I don't know what's going on with me. I'm really worried about it. Even something saying like, well, your gallbladder is located there. Have you ever had problems with the gallbladder? Like even if it's not the gallbladder, the fact that you're able to identify an organ that's in that location, explain what it does and why it causes pain and ask them questions about it kind of communicates that patient hey, I understand your body. Like I understand the body enough yeah. to be able to communicate with you that I'm tracking what you're telling me and I'm giving you some some common causes that may, you know, have a situation there, you yeah. know, so. Yeah, I can think of a of a abdominal pain. It's funny how it's the abdomen's ten, tends <laughs> to be the one that, got, that gathers a lot of this, but I can think of a, a case that I had with a very similar kind of presentation, right? This This generic abdominal pain that was... I don't think it was right upper. I, th I think it was right lower quadrant pain, right? But going through with that patient and, it, and talking with them, well, look, okay, let's talk about what's in that area, right? You've got your appendix down there. You know, have you had your appendix out? Oh, yes, I did. Oh, all right. Then it's probably not that, you know. But it, like you said, right, it's, it's getting them comfortable that you know what should be there, what it should be doing you know, and making some decisions based on that. Yeah. So. And, and there's definitely things that, you know, you're going to hear on the ambulance that you just, you have no idea. Like they're going to yeah. tell you some obscure Latin name for something. And sometimes they're making that up and it's a normal thing. I've had that before, a little bit of Munchausen's where they come up with a very long anatomy, like anatomical name for something mm -hmm. that's just toe yeah. pain, which is okay, you know, but sometimes it is a, a very specialized disease and that's okay to look all that up. Yeah. But if someone says, you know, Hey, how do I know if I'm having an allergic reaction? You should be able to communicate to them what it is that they could be seeing and why and where, where yep. they're looking at that. So moving into that, um, do you want to give a little description about like physiology, how you would describe that to a new EMT? Yeah. So, you know, physiology for somebody kind of on a basic level is, is, um, you know, the, the body is programmed to do a certain thing and each 
part and piece inside of there is programmed to do something in particular. And that's the physiology of it, right? So you have the anatomy, the structure, and then you have, how is this supposed to work? How is it normally operating? Um, right. Cause we need to, we need to separate physiology from pathophysiology, yeah. right. Two completely separate subjects. So physiology is, this is how it's supposed to work. This is what it's supposed to do. Yep. Exactly. You know, and, and that could be something simple. Like, uh, I've, I've been really getting into neuro exams lately because that seems like the, kind of the mystic ball of, of trying <laughs> to figure out what's going on with somebody and the cranial nerves are just always me and them are just going back and forth for years. Yeah. And, I, uh, I couldn't tell you what they are no, these days. No, I gotta look them up, but you know, I think, you know, an example of this is like, we know that a patient who's healthy should be able to look at you or should be able to track your finger, yeah. you know? And so if I ask someone a question and I move my finger back and forth or I look up and down, there should be some response from the motor nerves. There should be able to, to track that finger, you know, same thing with, you know, the pupil, the pupil should respond to light. And I think physiology really does go hand in hand with pathophysiology because most people are not going to call us when their anatomy and physiology are going fine, right? right. There's going to be some pathophysiology component. And I think in order to recognize what's wrong, you really need to know what's right. Yeah. You have to be able to pair those two things together in your head. Um, and I think knowing what tests to do and what to look for is super, super important. Oh, hundred percent. I mean, sure. I, I can sit here and joke and say that I don't remember what the cranial nerves are. And if you ask me to regurgitate whichever, what every one of them is, I might get the first three or four, yeah. correct? The rest of them are a little um, foggy, Yeah. but I still understand what they do, yep. right? Like I still understand, um, you know, one, the one, one of the ones that always stands out in my mind is the trigeminal nerve, right? And the, it's control over the face. Yeah. And does that really matter a whole lot for us in the field? No, not really, but it ties together with Bell's palsy, right? Like, yep. okay, I can recognize this person has got some, some sort of facial droop going on, but it's not in the rest of their body. I I'm starting to think now less stroke and more Bell palsy. Cause I understand that that's an issue with, you know, the, the fifth cranial nerve. So, um, you know, without a doubt, understanding, you know, what it's supposed to do gives you that ability to pick up on what it's not doing yep. or maybe what it's maybe what it's doing that it's not within norm, you know, within normal limits or within normal range, I should say. Yeah, no, and absolutely. So. And I think if you can focus on those three things, you're going to be successful, not only in a testing environment, but in the field working with your patients. The most common thing I see, especially our AEMT students struggling with when they take their exams is if they don't have a good grasp on anatomy, physiology, and pathophysiology, they are not successful in the exams because it's not rote memorization like in EMT class. EMT classes, you know, you know what what comes after scene safety? Okay, BSI. They're yeah. really just looking: can you follow an algorithm, and can you can you actually perform and not get yourself killed, and not get the patient killed, and at least try to get them towards the hospital till someone else can show up and tell you what to do, yeah. right? But at the AEMT level, they're really starting to give you some of these treatments that bifurcate based on your assessment. So my favorite example to use in class is the patient has difficulty breathing and the bifurcation between congestive heart failure and COPD. Because if you are unable to differentiate which one of those it is and you treat it aggressively, you can really hurt the person by using the wrong technique. You know, and this is this is the difference between is there fluid covering the alveoli where there's no gas exchange due to like a fluid issue or is it the obstruction of the airways where it, they're unable to exchange CO2 outside of the body? 
Because if, if you just show up and you start giving somebody albuterol and they're essentially drowning inside of their lungs, it's going to go really, really poorly. Yeah. You know, and I think as an AEMT, the expectation is that you're able to f- track that whole process down and start coming up with answers about why you think it might be one versus the other. But it boils down to that understanding of anatomy. You have to understand what do the alveoli do and what what are all the branches that lead up to the alveoli. And so knowing what those structures are, where they are, what they're supposed to do, and the other things that affect them guides you in figuring out what's wrong and how do I fix it, right? It's you have to be able to ask that, well, why? Why is this occurring? Why is that happening? Why why is it that if I give albuterol to somebody who's in CHF, is it not going to make a difference? It might make a subtle difference, right? Because you might open those airways up a little bit. Maybe you'll have a slight improvement, but yeah. you're not going to fix it, Yeah, right? You're not going to make it yeah. that much better. And then we'll really delve off the cliff here. Start thinking about all the other things that can go wrong by giving that albuterol, Yeah, right? So now we've got this person who's alveolar are full of fluid. Their heart is struggling to move that fluid, which is how they ended up where they are in the CHF problem. And then I give them albuterol and albuterol comes in and says, well, I'm going to open up these airways, but I'm going to kickstart this heart a little bit more and I'm going to make it work a little harder. And now you've made the situation that little bit of gain that you might've got is not there anymore. Right. You you started to make the situation worse. So, I mean, the nature of congestive heart failure is that it's failing. So to provide a medicine that's a sympathomimetic that's going to drive it to work harder when it's already failing is not ideal. So no, we want to try to avoid that. Yeah. You know, I think that's, that's some really great points and making sure that, you know, when you show up at the hospital, having the ability to communicate to the hospital staff, why you made a decision. One of the stories that always, that always kind of sticks out in my mind is there's this little bullet point that's in the difficulty breathing protocol, the asthma COPD rad protocol that everybody I think misses when they become an A, which is impending respiratory failure. You can give epinephrine 0.3 milligrams because it intramuscularly. And that's such a key point that you're now giving a potent beta two uh, dilator bronchodilator that is going through the intramuscular route, which is advantageous when you have someone that has a silent chest and asthma, because if they have a silent chest and asthma, we can infer that they should be moving air in and out of the body. We should be able to hear that. And if they have a silent chest, that's not happening. So the pathophys of that disease process is that it's so constricted that there's no air even making it to the lower parts of the airways. And if you understand the pharmacokinetics of albuterol, it needs to get into that lung tissue to actually affect and bronchodilate. So as an A, this is AEMT level stuff. This is not even paramedic stuff. You have to be able to show up and listen to all of that. And if you're giving albuterol and it's not working, you have to be ready to go to that next treatment algorithm. And epi is pretty consistently missed in that treatment from our A's because they're like, oh, well, that's for anaphylaxis. Yeah. No, it's it's a potent beta 2 bronchodilator and it goes to the intramuscular route. So if you think about the actual medicine entering the body, you're now able to dilate those bronchioles through a route other than the airway structure because the airway structure is closed. You can't get any med in there. And I remember bringing a patient up to the hospital and I had, I think, Dr. Bazando, who was great. And uh, the nurse came in. I was like, hey, so we have asthma patient, severe exacerbation. I gave Joan one three milligrams of albuterol, salimedrol, and I gave her some you know, I gave her uh, some albuterol um, and then epi IM. And she was like, epi IM. And the whole room just came to a grinding halt. And they're like, what is she allergic to? And I said, she's not allergic to anything. She has asthma. 
And they're like, someone else was like, oh, epi? How much epi did we give? 0.3? Okay, what was the allergy? And I said, it's not an allergy. It's it's a obstructive disease, and I needed to dilate the bronchioles through a route other than the airway because yep. I couldn't get it open. And the doctor came in, and the whole room just you know, it was like, you know, she's already had epi. We don't know what she's allergic to. And it's like, I'm like trying to hit the timeout and be like, doc, doc, doc. And I ended up taking Dr. Bazanzo out. I'm like, listen, she has a silent chest. She was severely constricted. I could not get any change with CPAP or albuterol. And I gave her this epinephrine intramuscularly. And she turned around, which gave me just enough room to get the albuterol in. I got, you know, you give the epi, you start hearing some wheezing and you're like, okay, we're headed in the right direction. That's actually good that we have some wheezing now. We're hearing noise. And now you add in the albuterol that starts to dilate, you know, and sometimes you might be in that position and you as the provider have to be confident and able to articulate why you made that decision. Because could you imagine if I showed up and I was like, well, the protocol said give epi. Yeah. Right. Well, they're not allergic to anything. Oh, it just says that. Yep. Right. You got to be able to be like, no, it's a silent chest. They're not moving air. I need to dilate it outside of albuterol because I can't get the med into the tissue that needs to be dilated. So that gave me that that crack in the door to now start pumping that sympathomimetic that's nebulized into those tissues, yep. which is working. You know, I think, you know, that's just a quick example of of you as a provider. You have to be willing to go all the way down that pathway and explain it to the doc. And in my experience, I've never been poo-pooed for doing treatments if I can do that. Yeah. But how did you get there, right? You got there because you understood the anatomy. You understood, right? How, I guess I shouldn't say even just you, right? How do we get there in that protocol? Yeah. We get there in that protocol because the anatomy directs us to get there. Yep. And we understand that, okay, we've got these constricted airways and if we're not moving it and we attack it from this other mechanism, uh, especially with the beauty of Epi, it's quick on, it's quick off, Yep. right? It's going to, it's essentially opening the door to allow the albuterol to come in. Once the albuterol is in there, like, Hey, let's have a party. You yep. know, we're going to make this happen. That's right. And, uh, and now you've corrected, you've, you've given that, that kickstart to then allow the rest of it to get corrected. Yeah. So. And you have to use that knowledge of anatomy and physiology to, make that judgment call because if that was a CHF patient and I had done that, it probably wouldn't have gone as well. Right. Right. You know, because now I'm, I'm just giving that airway more dilation and more area for that fluid to permeate. You're just allowing it. And go even further than that. You've given Epi to somebody who's got a fluid backup problem. What does Epi do? Right. Anatomy and physiology. What does Epi do to the body? It clamps everything down. Where's all that extra fluid going to go? The kidneys aren't going to keep up with it fast enough. You've already got lungs that are leaky. You know that. So where's all that extra pressure going to go? It's just going to dump in the lungs and you're going to make the situation worse. Yep. No, absolutely. Not to mention you're pressing a heart again with the sympathomimetic that has clearly told you by having congestive heart failure, it is failing. Yep. You know, and I think you know, that's something that I'm trying to work on, especially with our paramedic students, but also with our younger providers is, you know, tell me a little bit about why you made that decision. Yeah. You know, like, how did you get to where you get to? And, you know, that provider that's, that's crew captaining the ambulance, it's not acceptable to just say, well, the protocol said that, but why, why did you do that? What, show me the evidence that caused you to come to the conclusion that you were going to make that decision that you believed was going to make it better. Yep. How did you get there? Be able to defend it. Be able to, exactly. def- to just give me a defense to that that decision. And if your defense is, well, the protocol said so, we got a lot of work to do. Yep, absolutely. And I think the other piece that goes along with all of this is, is kind of ties into what we talked about at the very beginning of the episode, which is knowing when to take a second and get another data point. 
because there's been a lot of times in my career where I have a patient of like, oh man, this person cannot breathe. But you can't just start treating them based on that. You have to go a little bit further. Oxygen's pretty safe. You're not really going to hurt anybody with oxygen. So get them going on that. But then you got to do an assessment, listen to the lung sounds. And simple things like, you know, teaching A's in impending respiratory failure to start at the bottom, you know, and do you have any sounds at the bottom? No, work your way up. Where do you start getting sounds? What does that tell you? If you only have sounds, you know, at the very apex of the lungs, what should that tell you about what's going on in the airway? You know, those little pieces of it. Um, and I think we, it, the onus is on us as trainers to make sure that we're providing them with the opportunity to think through that. Yeah. You know, and, and I want to make sure I do a really good job. One of the things I'm guilty of is I get so excited about medicine that I just get, I just want to get in there and do the thing. And, uh, you know, that, that last call I was telling you about in the pre-show, you know, I, I actually didn't put my gloves on because that's my own little mental check to, to, I had a paramedic with me that's getting credentialed and I was like, Nick, just, just hang on, man. Just let him do it. Let him do it. And and not putting my gloves on is that kind of check to remind myself, okay, it's all right. He's He's got it. He's got it. Yep. It's funny because I've had a lot of people tell me the same thing as an officer, right? Like I'd, I love getting in there and working. Yeah. I love being in there and doing, you know, doing it, what, what it is that we do. Yep. And as an officer, I've had to take more of a backseat role, right? Yeah. Step back, watch yeah. the scene. Yeah. Um, sometimes, right, I'm I'm faced with this conundrum of I am the medic and yeah. I have an obligation that I have to do stuff, right? And when I have to work, I have to work. But other times I've I've had to sit back a little bit and just, I'm just going to let the crew work and let them do their thing. And I'm listening, right? I'm formulating a plan in my head and I'm formulating my differential diagnosis. But one of the ways I've, I've accomplished that is leave the gloves off. Yep. Right. Then yeah. you're not, then you're not so apt to jump in and, so and go to work. Yes. I know. I, I actually, um, have been working on, uh, some changes to how I'm operating in calls. I just transitioned from being on the ambulance for a long time and kind of having my own little office. I live in my cubicle and all my little posters and, you know, my medicines and my bags. And that was like my world. Like I was the guy, I was the medical guy for years. And now, you know, being a senior firefighter, I'm more in charge of the trucks once in a while. And, and I'm not necessarily going on the ambulances to the hospital all the time. And I get this like, you know, this impending fear that something's going to get missed. Right. Because I know what I would do. And I'm yep. like, I wonder if they're thinking the same thing. And uh, Steve Pettit was the one who actually helped me kind of cultivate a healthy habit around this. Because as I became a supervisor, my initial response was to poke my head in the back and be like, hey, you guys going to do a 12 lead? You can do a blood sugar. You can do this. You can do that. And I realized that that rubs people the wrong way yeah. pretty, pretty quickly. You're micromanaging. Exactly. They don't want that. Right. Yep. And so what Steve is like, is training me to do is he's like, don't do that. Just poke your head in and say, Hey, uh, Jeff, you want to tell me a little bit about what you plan to do between here and the hospital? Yeah. And listen, because they may say everything that you were thinking. And then you're like, good, we're on the same page. Or you yeah. may say, what do you think about a 12 lead? And they're like, well, I don't think we need one. I was like, well, they're 72 years old and they have abdominal pain. I think we should do one. Yeah. And I'll help you. I have no problem helping you if you want, but I think we should do one. Yep. Right. And then it comes back to the STEMI and you're like, Hey, that's why we do those. Right. Yeah. Like it, that's why the protocol exists. It's data driven, yep. Yep. you know, and that's just that learning opportunity, but it puts the ball in their court to prove to you that they have done the work with anatomy and physiology and protocol knowledge and pharmacokinetics to be prepared. Yeah. You know, if they say, well, I'm just going to wrap them up. Then that's your chance to say, well, I'd like you to do these things yep. or let me help you do these things. Yep. You know, but just that that slight pause and that shift in perspective of going from, hey, do this, do this, 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 to what do you plan on doing? What is your plan? What do you think is wrong? Yeah. 
And if there's, you know, if, if there's like a red flag, you know, incident that goes on and you, you have to step in and, and maybe step on somebody's toes, you come back to the station and you, and you sit down and say, Hey, this is why I wanted to do this. And oftentimes when I've done that, right, when I've gone back to the station and sat down with somebody and said, Hey, this is what I was thinking. It usually starts somewhere with anatomy and physiology. Oh yeah. Right. Like, Hey, the human body is supposed to be doing this. Yeah. And clearly this person was missing that was not doing whatever it was. Yep. And it's our job to figure out why. And you, you know, maybe you're like, Hey, well, you weren't picking up on this particular thing that I, uh, you know, that I, my experience was guiding me towards. And so this is why I wanted to do the 12 lead, you know, yep. whatever. Uh, but it all, you know, oftentimes we'll start with that, you know, Hey, tell me about the human body. Like, what have you, you know, what do you understand about this particular disease process and why this particular thing takes place the way that it does? So, yeah. no, absolutely. I just yeah. had a case the other night. We, our ambulances are usually BLS and ALS. You know, we have a, a EMT and an AEMT. And so sometimes the EMT will be in charge of the ambulance for the day and, yep. you know, they'll, they'll rotate around pretty standard up here. And uh, we just had a call the other night and we go there, we take a look at this guy and he's just gray, like just nasty EMT textbook gray, pouring sweat. And I remember one of the other engine backstep guys was like, hey, Nick, he feels like he just got out of the pool. You know, that like those cues. Yep. And you're like, oh, man, you know, and all his vitals are being OK. Right. Everything else looks good. But you just kind of get that spidey sense of like, mm, yep, like you're gray and you're pouring sweat and you've been sitting on the couch. There's like something's up with you. Yeah. You know, I, I was convinced it was an M.I., but that came back normal. And I was like, mm -hmm. you know, no sugar problem, nothing. And I remember the EMT was like, yeah, I'm all set. And I was like, I really think that at a minimum, we should make sure that the A rides us up and puts a line in. Yeah. Like, I really think we need to get a line large enough to pull labs immediately. Like, I think he's sick enough that we should make sure that when we get there, we can say that he has met the AMT protocol at least. Right. There's nothing paramedic level I'm going to do at that moment. Everything else looks fine. He's lucid, blah, blah, blah. So I get him up there. And I said that, and I remember the A, because it wasn't his day, was kind of like, yep. eh, really? Like, okay, no problem. Like, and he, he, he did it, right? Yeah. And then uh, they came back, and in the morning, they're sitting at the table, and they're like, hey, Nick, hey, Nick, hey, Nick, come here. And I was like, yeah. It was like, that guy had a huge GI bleed and had, like, no red blood cells. Yeah. I was like, so we may not be able to pinpoint exactly what's wrong, and we may not be able to pull those laboratory results, but that anatomy and that physiology of, like, you should not be gray and sweaty at two o'clock in the morning on the couch. It's telling us something. Something. There's we, something there. We might not be able to know exactly, but it's telling us something. We had a case, it, you know, it's funny how we, we keep saying, you know, just, just yesterday or whatever, right? But yeah. we, we had a case just yesterday, um, unresponsive woman and no clear indication why. Yeah. It was perfectly fine beforehand. Yep. She's an elderly woman, um, you know, perfectly fine before all of this. They, they think she might have aspirated, you know, like- and she just had this weird sort of disordered breathing, oh, um, you know, we're like, yeah. but otherwise like looked yeah. okay. Yeah. You know, it's like, I don't, and I, that's another thing that I always try to teach EMTs and AEMTs, new folks into this. It's okay to say, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what's going on. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It could be this. 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 Like the list is, you know, a mile long. Yeah. I don't know what's going on, but I don't like what I'm seeing. Right. Yeah. The anatomy and the physiology is telling me that something major is wrong yep. and we need to either move fast or we need to hit some benchmarks, you know, before we do move fast. Yep. Um, and, you know, this it, it turned out to be a brain bleed, yeah. you know, and. Yeah. 
stepping back and looking at it, we had all the classic Cushing's triad, yeah. right? But in the moment, they were so subtle. Yep. We didn't pick up on it. Yep. So. And we we say that in, you know, our refresher classes and our A class and everything is that I don't necessarily do it with the EMTs as much, but with the A's, I just drive it home. I try to oversimplify it and say, like, if it's not too small and it's weird breathing and they're not awake, it's a brain bleed until proven otherwise. Like, because think about it, it's whether it's acidosis, whether it's, you know, pressure on the medulla from a physical case or if it's, you know, stopping, starting, like there's really not a lot of other things that are causing that abnormal respiratory pattern other than pressure on the medulla. And the most common cause is a brain bleed, right? And so any sort of trauma, whatever, you know, you may not have the blown pupils. I pay more attention to the fact that they're unresponsive and their breathing's weird because I've had several, I had a case when I worked with Sean Soper and Williston of uh, legions on the brain from cancer. And it had that. And it's like, something's wrong with the brain. The brain is what's supposed to be controlling this pattern. Yeah. And outside of Kusmal, which we know is directly correlated with ketones, yeah. the, the other patterns, it's a brain problem. Something's wrong with the brain. And that's like, oh, let's go. Let's just get them right up. Yeah. You know, and and I think that's so true, being able to look at that picture of what is this supposed to be doing? Yeah. And what is it doing? And you may not get an answer in the truck. Yeah. You may not know. And that's, and I talk about the mental file cabinet a lot, which is every patient you go to, goes into a file. And in order to complete the file, you have to figure out what's wrong with them. So you take a picture, you know, it's just like a like a law enforcement's evidence database. You yeah. have a mugshot of the patient. You have a list of, you know, who they are, what they are, where you picked them up, what happened, what they were doing, you know, what went on, what the vitals were. And then at the very bottom, you need that disposition, that sentencing of like, what was it? Yeah, what was the outcome? Yeah, because if you go to that patient, right, and, and your whole crew experiences that, that, that visceral, subjective, in-person experience of what that presentation was, and then you're able to put that stamp on it that says that was a brain bleed, then when you see it again, you can pull from that yeah. naturalistic decision making and be like, you know what, I can correlate that to another event. But here's what drives me nuts is... When you do have those calls and your providers go up there and they drop them off and they come back to the firehouse, they're like, we don't know what's wrong with them. Go get the answer. Go complete that file. Because all you're going to have at the end of the day is you're going to just keep missing the same mistakes and you're going to keep having all these unfinished files if you don't complete the circuit. Yep. you got to build that, that you got to complete that so you can actually go back and access that and then find that result again. Now, I would even encourage them to go a little bit further, right? Don't just close it out, but find out why, yeah. right? If, yeah. if there's, you got you to gotta navigate this one correctly, right? Because the ER is slammed, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. as we know, yeah. you know, they're, they're busy. But if you have that opportunity to grab that doc or even that, you know, that seasoned nurse, right? And say, yeah. why, why did I, you know, yeah, okay, this person had uh, this going on, but why were they presenting the way that they did? Why? Yeah. Why did they have that that ashen, you know, color and that that sweaty skin, right? Like, what is it that was driving that? Because yep. um, it helps you. It's you got to be able to have the evidence and the outcome, but then to glue all that together, you got to know why. You do. You got to be able to. You got to be able to figure that out. You yeah. Know? And the two most underutilized people. I've said this in probably at least four other podcasts. The two most underutilized people in the ER are the respiratory therapists and the pharmacists. Yep. They 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 usually have enough discretionary time for the most part to talk with you more so than the attendings or the residents or the nurses and they are smart. 
Like yeah. they can tell you like everything that you want to know. I mean, I've had RTs give me innovation tips. I've had pharmacists be like, yeah, well, those meds are compatible. That's why you didn't get an effect. Yeah. Like, or those meds synergize. You know that? And you're like, no, 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 like, no. Adenosine single syringe works just as well as that two push and it's easier. Yeah. And you're like, okay, perfect. You know, like amiodarone, right? That it bubbles a lot, that it's not compatible with normal saline, that it pulls the plastic from the inside of the bag. And that's why we have to use the filter. Like that's all stuff I learned from the pharmacist. Yeah. I didn't get that from an EMT class or a paramedic class. Yep. Like you want to learn about meds, go to people who are a doctor in meds. Yeah. You know, go to people who went to two years of school in airway, you know, and and it's it's so interesting to have those folks available to us. And I, I really believe that they're underutilized. Oh, 100%. I think we, and it's empowering for them too. Like how cool is it when you bring someone in on CPAP and you're like, oh man, we didn't get good effect. And you go to the RT and you're like, hey, how come we didn't get good effect? And they're like, oh, it was a mucus plug. Yeah. Here's how we fix it. Hey, you just squirt a little saline in here, suck it right out. They're fine. You don't even need to put them on oxygen. Yep. And you're like, what? <laughs> right? But that's what they do. That's just Tuesday afternoon for them. Yeah. You know, and I think making sure that you have the opportunity to learn, but also building the relationships where you can walk in and be like, Hey, Kev, like how to do, how to do in there? Where, how far down was my tube when you did the x-ray? Cause yeah. you know, they're going to confirm with x-ray. So be like, Hey, how was it? Yeah. I put it at 21. Was it at 21? He's like, Oh yeah, you had like seven centimeters past, dude. You could pull back. Yep. That helps me with information. Yep. And that's coming from an RT who does this all day long, who sees tubes all over the hospital all day long. Yeah. You know, I think, I think we can do a better job of utilizing that periphery staff and not have to just always go to Dr. Plan or Dr. George with every question. Right. You know, I mean the, the, the pharmacist tying it back to this anatomy and physiology, right? Like let's face it. They probably have one of the best understandings oh, yeah. right, as a pharmacist, because they truly need to know this is what the human body is. This is what it does in the medicine that I'm giving does X, Y, and Z. Yep. And if, you know, W is out of place, then X, Y, and Z aren't going to work because I can't get there. Right. And so they truly have that like intimate knowledge of how those meds are supposed to work every now and then you'll get that med and it drives me insane where they're like, well, we think it does this. Oh yeah. Right. And yeah. I, my brain can't comprehend that. Yeah. I can't comprehend when you read that in a, in a, you know, in a drug profile, they're like, well, we think it does this. And I'm like, no, how you, how can you just think you have to know, you have to yeah, know what it does. I know. Right. The so, box says the effects are not identified, but yeah. eh, it does do this. We but think. it does. Yeah. In like 70% of people. Yep. And you're like, oh, okay. Well, I can't well, handle that. I know. Like, I, I need to know why. I know. So uh, just summarizing, you, you know, make sure that you understand what these structures are. Make sure you understand how they're supposed to operate, because if you don't know what they're what they look like or what they do, you're not going to recognize when it's going wrong. And if you can't recognize when it's going wrong, you're not going to be able to treat it. And whether you're taking an exam or you're working on patients, you know, the national registry is really designed to, to see if you understand how things are shaped, where they're located, how things work and how we're supposed to be fixing them. If you can point to a question or you can point to a patient and you can name the anatomy that's at play, the physiology of how that's supposed to work, the passive physiology of what's wrong with it, and then you can come up with your treatment algorithm, very rarely will you be wrong. It's the it's the the providers or the students that are unable to follow that chain that I think get ourselves into trouble. 100%. I mean, it's it is the foundation of everything that you're going to do in any level of medical care, and whether you're talking the EMT, uh, you know, or straight up through to the to the RT, to the to the doc, um, every level is built on that understanding of the basics. You've got to understand the basics. 
Absolutely. before you can start figuring out how to fix it. Absolutely. So, any last parting words of wisdom for people coming up through the ranks that want to keep climbing and being better? No, I, it, sure. Um, you know, in the pre-show we were talking, right? Sometimes I feel like a toddler, um, but I always give, you know, the advice of just, just ask about why, right? Be, be inquisitive, be eager to seek more information, but why, why does it do that? Why does that medicine do that? Why is the body doing what it's supposed to be doing? Just be inquisitive. Yeah. I've definitely been called a toddler because I do that to my preceptors. <laughs> and, you know, I really appreciate the people that have precepted me because they tolerated that. Yep. And I think I'm a better provider for having been fed that information throughout my process. You know, I think a really good tip that I'll leave you with is um, someone once told me, I forget who it was, but they said, when you drop a patient off, pay attention to what they do in like the first 10 minutes to that patient. If barring any sort of complex surgical procedures or anything like that, you really should probably have done yeah. the things that they're doing in the first 10 minutes. You should, if they, if they wheel an EKG right in there and you even think about an EKG, you should go up to someone in there and say, why are you so concerned about an EKG? Yep. And that might be like, oh, well, see this wide, you know, QRS. We're, we're thinking they're acidotic. We're going to get a better picture and see if there's a blockage because we think they have a heart attack. That's all information you can add in, Yeah. you know, but you know, we, our care should really mimic that initial stabilization and onset of what you see in the ED. Yeah. hundred percent. I've yeah. heard that from multiple folks that, yeah. you know, if, if they're doing something, as soon as you walk in, it's yeah. probably something you should have done if it, if it's within your scope yeah. of practice. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Right. Um, well, John, I really appreciate you being here today. Um, we look forward to having you back soon. All right. Thank you. Thank you.